You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Good morning. Please uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Colossians 4. We're going to be looking at verses 2 through 6 in our sermon this morning. Um, And as you're turning there, I want to take you back in time to uh, before Ben was on his sabbatical. If you remember uh, back then, he was preaching some pretty epic sermons from Genesis and Zephaniah, and some of those sermon texts were nearly two chapters in length, and that's like two long chapters in length. And the sermon this morning is going to be the opposite of that. We are only going to have five verses to look at this morning, but they have much to tell us about how we live new lives in Christ. So please follow along now as I read Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Our Father in heaven, you have given your people new hearts to live upright and godly lives through Jesus. Help us now to pay close attention to your word and to live in light of the good instructions you have for us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When bad things happen to people nowadays, um, we often hear phrases that sound something like, what did I do to the universe to deserve this? Or likewise, when good things happen, that is a surefire indicator that a person has pleased the universe and is now being rewarded for their good behavior. Uh, But here's the catch. Since the universe has not provided us any instructions for how we ought to live, it can be really tricky to figure out what the universe does and does not want us to do. So people just kind of subjectively determine uh, what is good in the eyes of the universe, which more often than not is usually just whatever's right in their own eyes. But friends, we do not serve an amorphous force like the universe. No, we serve the living God who made the universe and everything in it for his own glory. And in his kindness, he has not left us to wonder what is pleasing in his sight. He has given us instructions for exactly how we ought to live godly lives. And that's what we're going to look at in our sermon text this morning. These five verses in Colossians 4 are Paul's final directives for Christian living 
in this letter as he concludes his explanation of what it means to put on the new self. So as we look at our uh, short text this morning, we're going to see three main points. First point, pray in newness of life. Second, we're going to examine what it means to evangelize in newness of life. And then our third point, evangelize with newness of life. And if you're here for Sunday school this morning, you're going to hear a lot of reinforcement of what uh, Daniel talked about. So um, that was that was a good accidental timing on the Sunday school and the sermon because uh, evangelism is a big theme this morning. But to briefly orient us before we dive into the text, I just want to uh, review some of what we've talked about uh, in Colossians so far. So if you remember, the Colossian church was threatened by a dangerous teaching that seems to have been some sort of uh, Jewish pagan syncretism, which involved doing things that might seem spiritual on the surface, but really were not in accord with what God had uh, commanded for true spirituality through Jesus. And at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul began to zero in on exactly uh, what sort of conduct is pleasing to God as Christians live our new redeemed lives. He described many things that ought to be removed from our lives, things we need to put off, and then also many things that should characterize our new lives in Jesus. Uh, those are the things that we should put on. And he, had, he then offered some specific instructions for what uh, Christian households should look like, how husbands and wives and children should interact with one another in family units. Uh, and then last week we heard about some instructions for servants and masters. And Paul ends his focused instruction for renewed living with our sermon text here. So with that, let's go ahead and jump into our first point. Pray in newness of life. Colossians 4.2 reads, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So here, Paul is telling his audience how they ought to pray. Steadfastly, with watchfulness, and thanksgiving. But even without those three descriptors, we see a command. Pray. And this is significant because, remember, the Colossians are Gentiles. That's a big deal. Formerly, they were alienated. They were cut off from God. But now, here's Paul saying they have access to God. That they have been made new and adopted into the family of God and they can enjoy communion with him and fellowship with him as their heavenly father through prayer. And Paul rightly views prayer as an essential and necessary part of the Christian life. And uh, Jesus shares this expectation. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 6, verse 6. It starts with, but when you pray. Prayer in the Christian life is not an if, it's a when. We pray because we have a restored relationship with our Heavenly Father. We can approach His throne of grace with confidence because of our faith in Jesus, as Hebrews 4.16 tells us. How, how can we not pray if that's the case? 
And in God's kindness, he has not left people to discern for uh, themselves what prayer ought to entail. No, God has outlined for us exactly what elements our prayers should have. And Paul gives three of them here. Steadfastness, watchfulness, and thanksgiving. So let's start by examining what it means to pray steadfastly. In other places, this uh, same word for steadfast is sometimes translated as constant. So you may be familiar with uh, Romans 12, 12, which tells us to be constant in prayer. Similar idea. Um, and, and this has the potential to be a little bit confusing because the word constant sounds like something that is, uh, is, is a perpetual action. It's, it's going on and on and on and it's not stopping. Um, and the reason it can be confusing is it, it sounds like if I stop doing this action, then maybe I'm disobeying what uh, is, is being instructed. But the most literal translation of this word for steadfast or constant in these verses is actually uh, more like the word for devotion. I think that's the best way to understand this. Uh, and, and Paul realizes the demands of life prevent people from praying in literally every single second of our lives. We, we need to think about our jobs and do a good job there. Uh, we need to tend to the needs of our families. We need to sleep every now and then. But even with life's demands and our uh, very limited mental bandwidth, Christians can still be characterized as people who are devoted to prayer, people who pray often, who, who truly rely on God to carry out his good purposes, who humble themselves before their creator, who ask their father for things according to his will, and who seek fellowship with him through prayer. And in addition to being devoted to prayer, Paul instructs his audience to be watchful in prayer. And that's kind of an interesting term, uh, and it's used in a few other places, actually many other places in the New Testament, that can uh, go a long way in helping us understand what exactly Paul is saying here when he says to be watchful in prayer. One place where we find this same word is 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, which says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6 says, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. That's the same word, keep awake and be sober. When Paul uses this word for watchful in these other letters, uh, it's, it's describing diligent attentiveness and readiness, much, much like uh, someone who's watching for approaching enemies from the top of a castle wall. That's, that's not a job where you get to uh, fall asleep or get distracted, and neither is prayer. Indeed, the, the call to be watchful in prayer uh, is, is actually indicating to us that prayer itself uh, can be a sort of battlefield where people may be overtaken or led astray if we're not careful. And Paul similarly encourages the church in Ephesus along these lines in uh, Ephesians six eighteen, where he writes, "...praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, 
keep alert with all perseverance. Again, we see these themes of devotion to prayer coupled with this uh, idea of being alert and diligent. So watchfulness in prayer ultimately is, uh, is to pray with attentiveness, alertness, focus, and care. And lastly, Paul instructs the Colossians to pray with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving recognizes that God is the source and giver of all things in our lives, even the things that we think are uh, bad or difficult. Ultimately, God is working them together for good. And while there are countless things that we can thank God for and should thank God for, uh, Paul gives the Colossians a sample prayer back in chapter 1, verse 12, where he, uh, where he writes that he and Timothy have been giving thanks to the Father who has qualified the Colossians to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul is thanking God for the Colossians' salvation, for the saving work of Jesus that he's done in their lives, and that ought always be mentioned in our prayers for ourselves for what God has done in the lives of other people. We need to thank God for the saving work that he's accomplished through the gospel. So this verse, uh, the second verse in Colossians 4, gives us three simple descriptors that uh, should be characterizing prayer. So the, the question is, do they characterize your prayer? Does your life show devotion to prayer? Do you desire fellowship with God through it? If prayer is just an afterthought or a matter of form for you, you need to repent and stop taking this good gift of God for granted. And uh, if you think that you are safe and secure in Jesus because you prayed a prayer one time a long time ago, even though your current pattern of life is inconsistent with the gospel, you need to realize a key mark of the new life that we have in Christ is regular devotion to prayer. It's not something that we do once for insurance purposes only. Do you pray when you're alone? Or is it only when there's other people around to hear you? If you are to be characterized by prayer, it's not enough to only pray when others can observe you and notice you. Devotion to prayer should be most manifested in our personal times of prayer. That's what Jesus is talking about uh, if we look back at Matthew 6. Matthew 6 verse 5 says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Maybe you treat prayer the way that monks of, of other religions treat meditation, a, an emptying of the mind. Or maybe on the opposite end, uh, are you so feverish in your prayers that 
you try to generate a sort of spiritual experience that you can point to and say, ha, I felt that, therefore those prayers are valid. Or maybe you pray without thinking things through so that you say things about God that really aren't correct. Or maybe you ask God for things that you really should not be asking for. It's not to say that we always can pray perfectly. We, we can't. But we are instructed to be watchful in prayer. Not totally absent-minded and also not overly wild, but attentive, thoughtful, and careful. That is the posture and demeanor that Paul lays out here, and it, it pleases God as we enjoy prayerful fellowship with him. And we need to be thankful in our prayers. We need to recognize uh, that God is the source and giver of all good things in our lives, especially our salvation. We need to thank him often for these things. And then uh, don't, don't stop there. Uh, we can certainly also thank God for who he is. There's so much about God that we can be thankful for, for his wisdom, his kindness, his his righteousness, his holiness, his goodness, his love, all of those things are fair game for thanking God in prayer. And if your prayers don't include these elements, try to incorporate them as you continue devoting yourself to prayer through uh, your new life in Christ. So let's go ahead and move on to our next point, evangelize in newness of life. Let's look at Colossians, verses three, uh, Colossians 4, verses 3 and 4. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now, in verse 3, Paul asks the Colossians to pray for himself and Timothy, just as they have prayed for the Colossians. And right away we see an important idea. Intercessory prayer, or, or praying for other people. So while Colossians 4.2 gives some general guidance on what should characterize our prayers, verse 3 gives us a place where we get to put it in action. Praying for others. This is echoed in Ephesians 6.18, where Paul writes, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Praying for other believers is biblical. We don't live our lives in isolation from other believers. No, Christians have new lives and belong to a new family, a new heavenly family that encourages and uplifts and supports one another. And part of that is praying for one another. God commands us to do this in his word. And, and we can be assured that God is pleased when we pray for our dear brothers and sisters in the faith. We do that publicly uh, here at our Wednesday night prayer meeting. We do it at uh, various other group meetings throughout the week. And we must pray for one another because God tells us to do it. And our prayers really do have an effect. God really does hear us. And he really does answer our prayers according to his will. Even though he already knows what we need and what we're going to ask for or what we're going to pray for others, he still delights to hear us come before him 
and make these requests and intercessions for other believers. But why would Paul and Timothy be in need of prayer right now? Well, because at this point in history, remember, Paul's in prison. He made it to Rome, uh, and, uh, which we learned at the end of Acts. And he fairly quickly gets in trouble for his efforts to share the gospel, or uh, as it's phrased here, to declare the mystery of Christ. But Paul is not deterred. He has seen the gospel take root in pagan Gentile cities like Colossae and Ephesus, and there's already some young Christian churches in Rome. The first chapter of Romans uh, gives us some additional context regarding Paul's goal in that city. Romans 1, starting at verse 11, reads, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, Romans was written a few years before Paul's letter to the Colossians, so our sermon text is a bit of a fast-forward from uh, this time point in Romans. But Paul here uh, has managed to arrive in Rome. He's attempting to carry out the very thing that he mentions at the beginning of Romans, which is to encourage the believers in Rome and to reap a spiritual harvest among them and the Gentiles who are there. So we know why they came to Rome, and we know why they're in prison. But let's take a closer look at specifically what Paul is asking the Colossians to pray for on their behalf. First, Paul asks the Colossians to pray that God would open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Now, because Paul is in prison, uh, that might kind of sound like a play on words, like he's asking for a jailbreak, like open a door for the word, like open these doors of this jail so I can be free. Maybe that's a small part of it, but Certainly, what Paul is wanting far more than his own physical freedom is for God to open a door for the word in Rome. In his missionary efforts, Paul is devoting his entire life to the service of Christ through evangelism in, in lost, uh, to the lost in nations that have never heard the gospel. His main hope is that many would be receptive to this good news and that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. So he asks the believers in Colossae to pray for God to present opportunities for evangelism in order that these unbelievers might hear and believe. And what does Paul aim to do in the opportunities that God presents? Is he, does he want to just remain under the radar and uh, not offend and not upset the status quo? Maybe he wants to live out the rest of his days in quiet Roman comfort. That might have sounded appealing. But no, Paul wants uh, these opportunities to declare the mystery of Christ. So what is the mystery of Christ? Ephesians 3, 6 gives us a very clear answer. It reads, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
That is what Paul wants the Romans to know about. That God, who formerly was far away from them, who they did not know, who they did not have access to, he has made a way for Gentiles to become fellow heirs and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And Paul doesn't just want to casually tell them about this. He wants to declare it to them. That's preach it to them and and call for a response. And those of us who have been at this church for really any amount of time uh, are, are blessed to hear the regular declaration of Christ's mystery because we love the gospel here, and we want it to be the, the crown jewel of everything that we do. And you're about to hear it again. I'm going to lay it out for you. So if you are still unclear on what the gospel is or, um, or, or need some, uh, some clarification, we will clear that up right now. So kids, if you're not listening, now's the time to listen. Adults, if you're not listening, now's the time to listen. Because if you forget everything else in this sermon, this is the part that I want you to remember. God's mystery in Christ isn't just for a bunch of dead people thousands of years ago. It's for everyone, everywhere, that all might reach repentance. God, who is the creator of the universe, who made the earth and everything in it, who made you and me, has given life to all things, he is holy and righteous. Romans 1 tells us he has put his divine attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, on display for all to see in the things that he has made. There is no escaping this reality. Though all of us, as fallen human beings, have tried to cast off God's ownership of our lives and become gods unto ourselves. We've rebelled against our holy and righteous creator. We've all done and said and thought horrible things that God hates. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And in our pursuit to reign over our own lives, we have just invited God's wrath for our divine treason. But God in his mercy has worked throughout history to unfold a plan of redemption. So despite our rebellion and despite our hatred of God, God has seen fit to put his mercy on display by sending his only son, Jesus Christ, to put on full humanity and live a perfect life that we could never live. Yet his purpose was was not just to lead by example and show us what it looks like to to, uh, live a good life, No, he came and lived a perfect life in order that he would die in our place. Jesus was brutally murdered, and on the cross, God the Father poured out the fullness of his divine wrath onto his Son. He did this so that that same wrath wouldn't have to be poured out on people like you and me. Jesus made full atonement for us. And he rose again in victory over sin and death, And through him, God has ransomed a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. And now the risen Jesus commands everyone everywhere to repent and believe in the gospel. He stands ready to forgive all who put their full faith and trust in him for salvation. He's the only hope of refuge. 
from the burning wrath of God against this fallen world, against sin, and against the sinners who inhabit it. So come to your senses, turn to Jesus, and live. That's the message Paul wants the Romans to hear. That's the message that got him in trouble in Rome. And it'll get us in trouble too. If it doesn't, if, if our relationships with people who don't believe are completely frictionless, we're probably not doing this right. But Paul is not deterred by his imprisonment. He wants to keep declaring the gospel to everyone who will listen. And in verse 4, he specifies another request for his evangelistic efforts. Colossians 4.4, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul makes a similar request to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. He writes, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul requests prayer for clarity in his declaration of the gospel. He knows that's how he ought to speak, yet here he is requesting prayer for it. Why? Because clarity in the gospel is difficult, and it is offensive to sinful human hearts. And even for the redeemed, like our sin still causes us to shrink away from the aspects of the gospel that we view as maybe being more severe because we're afraid of risking things like our relationships and our reputations or our jobs. And preaching the gospel with clarity does require boldness. And Paul turns to his fellow believers to ask God to give him courage to preach Christ clearly as he ought to speak. We, we don't really want to talk about God's hatred of sin or judgment or wrath or hell or death. Some people just say, oh, that stuff is so depressing. You'll just scare them away if you talk about that. We should just focus on God's love and accept people for who they are. But those are, those are lies. And they're lies that a lot of people and churches today have fallen prey to. They've abandoned clarity in the gospel for the sake of appearing to be more friendly and welcoming. But in so doing, they betray Christ. Because failing to proclaim the truth of God's justice the reality of sin and its consequences, and the looming threat of condemnation in hell is unloving to the hearers, and it robs Christ of the glory he is due. I would ask you to consider yourself. Are, are you maybe one of these people? Do you believe in a God who really isn't that serious about sin, who doesn't really demand obedience, doesn't really care whether or not you tell others about his son. Friends, all the church attendance 
and volunteering and participation in the world will not save you if you believe in a false gospel. Take a hard look at yourself and consider ways in which you might really not be believing in the gospel. Paul speaks really strongly on this point in Galatians 1.8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul calls damnation on himself or anyone else who would preach a false gospel. And friend, a gospel without judgment is a false gospel. Judgment is what we deserve. Judgment is what Christ bore for us. And judgment is what's coming for every single person on this planet. We will all stand in judgment, whether we want to talk about it or not. And people need to know that their only hope of pardon on that day is seeking refuge in Jesus Christ. In this second point, Paul asks the Colossians to pray for him in prison, that God would open doors for the declaration of the gospel and that Paul would declare it with clarity. But what should we take from this? We should ask ourselves a simple question. Would I go to jail for the gospel? Or let's take it a step further. Would I die for the gospel? Paul did. Nearly all of the apostles did. Many, many Christians throughout history did. Why? Because nothing that this world can do to us compares with the glory that's going to be revealed at the end of history. God is redeeming a people for himself, and his people are part of that ongoing work. So that should energize us to evangelize, no matter what the world might do to us. And we too need to declare the gospel. We need to evangelize. It's the only hope that lost sinners have of being reconciled to a holy God. And Jesus commands us to do it. So if we say we belong to him, we need to obey him. He's given us new hearts that long to obey him and please him. So so love Jesus and love the people in your life enough to share the gospel with them, even if it risks your relationships or your reputation. Don't withhold the gospel because they might reject you. Actually, to the contrary, Give them the gospel, the full gospel, because they might not reject you. They might listen. God might open doors for gospel opportunities in your life and simultaneously be opening people's hearts to be receptive to that good news and ultimately enter into eternal life. Friends, that's worth it. So take that risk because it honors Christ and it invites others to share in the salvation that we have in him. And we need to declare the gospel clearly. Don't hold back that key information because maybe you're afraid someone might not take it well. Rather, we need to fear the Lord and consider whether Jesus would approve of our presentation of the gospel. We have a duty to be faithful to Jesus and that obligation simultaneously really does show the highest love for our hearers. So preach the gospel clearly, 
Don't forget the the so-called bad news of sin and wrath and judgment and hell because those are the things that make the saving power of Jesus so good. And I would also caution you, don't be so afraid of messing up that you just never share the gospel. There's grace in it, and God shows his sovereignty in rescuing people out of sin, even in light of messy gospel uh, proclamations or our forgetfulness. But we need to do our best to honor Christ and how we share the gospel, so we strive for these things because it does honor him. We also need to pray for other believers. God calls us to do this, and it shows that uh, we care about our brothers and sisters in Christ. At this church, like I've already mentioned, we have a weekly prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. And I'll just say this. Whatever, whatever the reason is that you are not attending prayer meeting, I wanna, let's, let's go clean slate. This is your invitation to come to prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. We would love to have you. We, uh, we really have a sweet time praying for one another and praying for our world at large. Um, and even beyond that, if you're a member of this church, make good use of your membership directory. Keep it somewhere uh, where you can access it regularly. Maybe pray for a few church members with your family before dinner or in family devotions. That's a really great way to come before God for one another and, and ask God to address our needs. And let people know you're praying for them. That's really a great encouragement, and it knits us closer together in Christ. And praying for other believers isn't just limited to people in our church. We can pray for believers around the world. Uh, indeed, 1 Timothy 2.1 broadens it even further and says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So we should pray for all people. For God to bring people to saving faith in Jesus, for wisdom to be given to our leaders and officials, and for God's will to be done in our world at large. So with that, let's come to our final point in this morning's sermon, which is evangelize with newness of life. Evangelize with newness of life. Look back at Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. In these last two verses of our text, Paul gives instructions primarily for how believers are to interact with other people uh, day to day as we live our new lives in Christ. In verse 5, Paul clearly puts unbelievers or outsiders in view because he knows that the Colossian believers are surrounded by unbelieving family and friends and co-workers and strangers, and they have to interact with these people on a regular basis. So maybe they're not traveling uh, to other faraway lands to, to evangelize the lost, but they do still have an evangelistic mission to undertake right where they are. Verse 5 starts with the imperative. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Walk, in this context, is, is referring to one's manner of life, how someone ought to behave on a regular basis. 
And he specifies that this manner of life must be characterized by wisdom. But where does wisdom come from? Where, where do we get wisdom from? Colossians 2.3 tells us that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And God has given us the full counsel of his word in order that we may know how we ought to live in light of his character and his holiness. We don't have to guess what pleases God. God tells us exactly what he wants us to do and how we ought to think in pretty much any conceivable situation. I'd, I'd guide you even more specifically still to the book of Proverbs, where you'll find uh, numerous scenarios of God's distilled wisdom uh, that are really useful for everyday life. So to be able to walk in wisdom, our lives need to be saturated with the knowledge of Christ and of God's word. But we don't just walk in wisdom because it's a good thing to do, uh, right? Paul specifies the Colossian believers should walk in wisdom toward outsiders. The believer's wise manner of life should not only be evident to the unbelieving world, but it should really be oriented towards the unbelieving world. Believers shouldn't undergo conversion and then vanish from the public eye. No, we're to demonstrate this godly wisdom that we get from Christ and his word to the outsiders around us. This puts God's wisdom on display for all to see. And this makes sense, right? If, if we are to be Christ's representatives and ambassadors here on earth, then the things that we do and say give a picture to the people around us of what Jesus looks like. Walking in wisdom, as Paul is instructing here, uh, gives an accurate and faithful picture of what Jesus looks like. Uh, to the contrary, if we walk uh, in foolishness, we're basically showing the world that Jesus is foolish. We don't want to do that. We, want, we, we don't want to give people a false view of Jesus. The second half of verse 5 adds even more urgency to uh, our interactions with unbelievers. Paul instructs the Colossians to make the best use of the time. This phrase can also be translated as redeeming every opportunity. We can certainly take that as a, a kind of a basic call to productivity and diligence, not to waste time because time is a gift. And uh, Ephesians 5.16 tells us that the days are evil. So that idea is, is certainly supported in Scripture, and it does give a good witness for Christ. So just think, as non-Christians are observing you day in and day out, um, what do they see? Are you industrious? Do you work hard? Are you lazy? Your work ethic says a lot about your desire to make good use of your time as a general practice. However, in our context, I think actually Paul's getting at something even more. I think he's emphasizing the urgency to make good use of evangelistic opportunities. So the most literal rendering of, of this phrase um, is uh, this phrase of making the best use of the time, I think is really making the most of every opportunity. I say this for a few reasons. So first, he just finished asking for prayer in his own evangelism. Second, this sentence starts off talking about outsiders. So that's the subject. That's who's in view. 
And then third, the following sentence is also talking about outsiders in, uh, in speaking about how we ought to answer each person. So this is really oriented towards the unbelieving world. So making the best, of, uh, the, the best use of the time or making the most of every opportunity is really in reference to every opportunity with an unbeliever. We might paraphrase this as conduct yourselves with wisdom before the unbelieving world and make the most of every opportunity you have to share the gospel. Verse 6 gives us uh, even further support for this because here Paul tells his audience how they make the best use of every opportunity, specifically in regards to how they ought to speak. He says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now we have interaction with unbelievers uh, in the text. We're, we're talking to them. So we don't just live holy lives and then hope that our good conduct gets people interested in Jesus and then they go off by themselves and do some research and then they, uh, they come to a saving knowledge of the truth. Maybe that happens and that would be great. God can certainly work in that. But really, our good conduct should be an avenue to conversations where you get to tell them the truth. They shouldn't have to go off and find it on their own. Like You should be the, the road to the gospel for as many people as possible. And Paul gives some important descriptors of what our evangelistic speech should look like. He says it should be gracious and seasoned with salt. But let's first be clear about what graciousness in our speech does not entail. Being gracious does not mean that we unconditionally affirm or maybe even trivialize someone's sin. God never does that, and neither should we. Instead, graciousness in our speech stems from the grace that God has shown us in his Son. So for our speech to be gracious, it, it ultimately should be conveying the means of grace, which is the gospel, which we've talked about at length here. So, yeah, kindness and uh, gentleness and winsomeness and understanding are all involved here. But to communicate graciously, uh, I think, also is going to involve communicating where grace comes from. Gracious speech points to and culminates in Jesus. Proverbs 16.24 says, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Gracious speech is nourishing to the hearers, and it gives a faithful witness for Christ. And the additional instruction to speak uh, with words as though they were seasoned with salt gives further emphasis to this winsome nature that we should try to be uh, using to present the good news of Jesus. The words of uh, believers ought to be words that other people are wanting to listen to, as if they were like a type of tasty food. They want more. And Paul concludes verse 6 with uh, the reason for taking these types of care with our speech, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The path to salvation is always the same. It's always through the gospel. But each person's situation is unique and different. 
So this discernment and answering people according to where they are is what Paul is encouraging here. He knows that the Colossians come from all walks of life, and they're going to interact with unbelievers from all walks of life. And just as God has worked in his mercy to meet each believer where we are at, so Paul is instructing his audience to do the same with their hearers. Paul himself uh, is an example of this. He writes in 1 Corinthians 9.22, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And Jesus, in his earthly ministry, always knew how to answer each person, right? So uh, think back to the Pharisees. He often spoke very sharply to pierce through their hypocrisy and their blasphemy. To the rich young ruler, he exposes that man's unwillingness to leave his worldly possessions and follow Jesus. And to the woman at the well, he speaks kindly, and he demonstrates his omniscience in knowing her secret sins and in revealing to her that he was the long-awaited Messiah. Those are just a few of numerous examples where Jesus knew how to answer each person because he knows our hearts perfectly. So as we wrap up this final point, what do we need to take away Well, we need to learn wisdom, and we need to apply it to our lives so that it characterizes us. Living wisely is a good witness for Christ, and it accurately displays the supreme wisdom of our God. Look to God's word for wisdom and pray to God for wisdom in situations where you realize you are lacking. God will grant wisdom in the measure he sees fit. Next Uh, Be diligent to make the most of every opportunity you have to share the gospel. Use your wisdom and discernment to create avenues to the gospel and resist that urge that we all feel to shy away from it. In the past, I've I've known some people to say that uh, presenting the gospel in full might really uh, just do more to deter people than welcome them in because of all that bad stuff that we talked about before. Uh, and that, that's correct to an extent, right? Uh, those who are set against God will be offended by the gospel. They will find it abrasive. But on the other flip side, maybe God is working in their heart to prepare them so that they'll receive it with joy and gladness. And if, if you, believing friends, think that the gospel is an ugly message that won't be well-received, I want to challenge that. I want you to really think about God's loving kindness in it. The gospel is beautiful, and it can be communicated in all of its splendor and glory in a way that really does leave a good impression. If you're not convinced of this, you have homework. Actually, everyone has homework, no matter what you think. Go read Romans 8. Better yet, memorize Romans 8. Because it will, it will instill in your brain a memory of the immense goodness and hope and joy that we have in Christ. And it will help you communicate it with other people. So if you want a place to go, Romans 8. Know it really well because it's, it's a beautiful picture of 
what God has done in the gospel and how it culminates in just God's glory uh, through his saving work. Lastly, I, I want us to all be gracious and use discernment as we go about evangelizing the lost. We need to remember everyone's different. Um, we need to be willing to meet people where they are. That doesn't mean that we affirm their sin. But we do need to show understanding because we were at one time in the same state. We were dead in our sin and estranged from God. So give people hope in the grace of God and point people to Jesus as the source of forgiveness for guilty sinners like you and me. To conclude, in Christ, believers are a new creation and have been given new hearts that love God and hate sin. And this change is not one that just remains uh, on the inside of us. It overflows into our lives and it changes the way we think and act. And in the five verses that we've examined this morning, there's a lot that we should be doing in response. So if you're a believer, devote yourself to prayer. Let it permeate your life and characterize you as one who is dependent upon God. Pray with alertness and diligence for all manner of things and people, and pray particularly for missionaries and for their evangelism to bear fruit among the lost. And in your own life, walk wisely and seek opportunities to share the gospel. God may indeed use it to save the lost from eternal destruction. Look to God, ask for wisdom in knowing how to answer people in these situations, and let his grace be the foundation of your speech. And if you're not a follower of Christ, if you believe anything other than the gospel that I've laid out before you this morning, you need to realize that you remain separated from God. You are not a partaker of the promise that's in Christ Jesus. You are still in your sins, and the wrath of God remains on you. You are the outsider that verse 5 speaks about. And I want to make sure that this sermon stands as a good witness to you about the truth of Christianity. So I'll end with this verse from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have indeed worked mightily to save your people through Jesus. We give you praise and glory for this, and we rejoice in the new life that we have in him. Thank you for extending this grace and mercy, and help us to be diligent in our service to you. May we represent you well, and may it please you to save others through our witness for Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.